Please turn with me to uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, and we will look at verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thanks be to God for this wonderful, wonderful portion of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us this portrait of yourself. Help us, uh, comfort us, encourage us, draw us, summon us to embrace more fully, to understand more deeply the fullness of what you have done for us. Grant us your spirit that these things might happen for us, to us, in us, we ask. And we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. 
We, uh, we are in Lent. We are in the season of Lent. Let me say something about that. We only have a couple of weeks left in the season of Lent. Uh, Palm Sunday is just a couple of weeks away. That's the beginning of Holy Week, but we're still in the season of Lent. And recently, uh, I've, I've read uh, some blog posts um, by, some, by some prods, you know, some Protestants, some prods, who take exception to the idea of Lent. And, and I get that. I get why they take exception to the idea of Lent. Uh, one of the comments that is made is that, is that we, we, embracing the gospel, uh, believe that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not that you give something up for a handful of weeks in the course of the year, and the rest of the year you just sort of get to indulge your fleshly appetites. Right? Like... An, ten-and-a-half-month-long Mardi Gras, right? No, no, we don't, we don't, we don't embrace that understanding of, of Lent. We understand that the Christian life, start to finish, as Martin Luther indicated in the first of his 95 theses, the Christian life is a life of repentance. Now, the Christian life is a life of as Jesus did saying no to ourselves. It is a life of self-denial. So why do we do this? Why do we observe Lent? Well, here's why we follow the church year, and this is a reminder for many, but maybe it's news for some. We don't do it in a slavish way. We, don't, we, don't, we do it with a different understanding. The reason we follow the church year is as a reminder to ourselves that space and time belong to God. Space and time are the environments within which God accomplish, accomplishes his redemption and salvation. I, I know this is March Madness. I'm hoping that there'll be three Big Ten teams in the final four. (laughs) But we understand, don't we, that time does not belong to the NCAA. And time does not belong to the United States government. The calendar for us is a different calendar. We appreciate these things, we respect these things, and we have fun with some of these things. But time has significance because God is a God who works in time and redeems in time. And the church year is simply a way for us to be reminded of that. And so we're in the season of Lent in which we're looking ahead to Holy Week and Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday, and a Good Friday service, and, and then Resurrection Day, the most significant day in the whole of the year, the most significant event in the whole of human history. These are things that we need repeatedly to be reminded of. And what we're getting in Isaiah 53 is Isaiah looks down the corridors of history as he looks from his vantage point in the 8th century B.C., What we're seeing, as you well know, in Isaiah 53 is a depiction of the suffering servant. Look, we we know that Jesus is the great serpent crusher. We, We know that Jesus is the king who comes and who, when he comes, brings joy to the world. And that by his 
coming. Blessings begin to flow as far as the curse is found. But Jesus the King comes in humility and weakness and is a suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 gives us a portrayal, a picture of some of what it is that Jesus accomplishes in his work on the cross. Now to ramp us up to this and to move us in the direction of of the contemplation of and the consideration of Isaiah 53 this week and next. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in this this chapter to ramp us up, to get us there. I want to ask you a couple of questions. The question that's asked in the bulletin is the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? But here's a question that's slightly different that moves us in the direction of answering the question, why did Jesus die? The other question, the prior question, is why did Christ have to die? Why did Christ have to die is different from the question why Christ did die. And let me suggest to you that there are two answers to the question, Why did Christ have to die? And the first is this. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to die. J.I. Packer makes this wonderful point in one of the most precious, at least to me, passages ever written outside the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. Let me read it for you. Some of you are familiar with it because I've referred to it. It's on page 113 of the book, the the 1974 hardbound edition of the book, Knowing God. We have in previous chapters made the point that God's end in all things is his own glory that he should be manifested, known, admired, adored. This statement is true, but it is incomplete. It needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on men and women and children, it was written in 1974 before generic language became something important to us, needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on men and women and children, God has voluntarily bound up his own final happiness with theirs. It is not for nothing that the Bible habitually speaks of God as the loving father and husband of his people. It follows from the very nature of these relationships that God's happiness will not be complete till all his beloved ones are finally out of trouble, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more, as the hymn has it. And here's the important thing. God was happy without man before man was made. How was he happy? He was happy as the infinite and eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the one God who truly exists, 
who is really there. The infinite personal triune God who is there, who is the only explanation, the only thing big enough to account for everything that we see, whether it be things that we see or things that we know to be true but cannot see. He's the only explanation big enough to account for everything. That triune God was happy without man before man was made. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed man after man sinned. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed man after man threw off threw off the beauty, the loveliness, the goodness, the blessedness of God's good and gracious rule. God would have continued happy if God had simply destroyed man after that rebellion and after that sin. But as it is, but as it is, He has set his love upon particular sinners. And this means that by his own free, voluntary choice, he will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again till all those whom he has loved are brought safely home to himself. What's the first answer to the question? Why did Christ have to die? The first answer is, he didn't, my friends. He didn't have to die. But in the councils of eternity, the eternity, this triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, in the mystery of his eternal purpose for all of human history has set his affection upon particular sinners. And once the Father does that, and once the Son submits to the Father in agreeing with the Father that they together, along with the Holy Spirit, will save a people, then it becomes necessary for Christ to die, but only because the Father in mercy and grace has loved particular sinners in Christ from before the foundation of the world. This is what the writer, this is what the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is referring to. His very last words to these folks are these. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. The blood of the eternal covenant. What is packed into that little phrase? Well, I will tell you what is packed into that little phrase is the purpose of the Father having loved a people in the Son to give that Son 
the Father and the Son, having covenanted together, having made an agreement together, having made promises to each other, the Father, having loved a people, would commission the Son, and the Son would come into the midst of this world, and through His death on the cross, through the shedding of His blood, He would secure salvation for the people whom the Father had loved in Him, and the Spirit would come. The Spirit would come having the central purpose of bringing all of the blessings secured by Christ to bear upon those for whom the Son had died and whom the Father had loved from all eternity. Father and Son and Holy Spirit covenanting together before the foundation of the world by the blood of Christ to redeem a people. The answer to the question, why did Christ have to die? The first answer is that he didn't. But then the Father and the Son covenanting together then made absolutely necessary that the Son would have to come veiled in flesh, taking a nature to himself, just like yours and mine, a nature that is troubled by, plagued by, afflicted by the weaknesses, the frailties that you experience and have experienced every day. Just parenthetically, folks, thank you so much for praying for me this last week. I will tell you it was not an easy week. You don't need to know details. You can imagine them. My mother's 87 years old. Two broken ankles, broken hip, two major surgeries in the last six weeks. Medically, she's doing fine. My mother is slipping away. Jesus took to himself a nature just like yours, subject to these weaknesses and these frailties, exposed every moment of his day to real and true temptation, and at every single point. He said yes to his father and no to those temptations. And so lived in that real human nature a perfect life, pleasing to the father, so that he might die in the place of those who have not pleased the Father. Why did Christ have to die? Answer number one, he didn't. Answer number two, when the Father and the Son and the Spirit together among themselves make a commitment to the redemption, the rescue the deliverance, the cleansing, the justifying, the adopting of a people for themselves, then Christ must die to secure that salvation for those people. And so why then? 
Why then did Christ die? If Christ, because of this eternal covenant made between the Father and the Son, if Christ then had to die, had to shed his blood, why then did Christ die? The answer to this question is found in the first. The answer to this question is because the Father willed it. You read the gospel narratives and you see conspiracies. You see Jews and Romans conspiring together to deal with Jesus. You see an angry mob wanting to rid themselves of this menace. But if you look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53, speaking prophetically, here is this most stunning, most stunning of statements imaginable. It was the will of the Father to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to make his soul an offering for sin. I've used this illustration before. It's so predictable. I guess you can probably hear it coming. But it is so poignant and it so well illustrates this point. You remember the interview that Mel Gibson did with Diane Sawyer after the release of The Passion of the Christ? And do you remember that in that interview, Diane Sawyer asked Mel Gibson three times, baiting him, provoking him, wanting to get him to say something stupid, which Mel Gibson clearly is capable of doing. (laughs) Three times she asked him, did the Jews... Kill Jesus. Did the Jews kill Jesus? And then the third time, Mel, did the Jews kill Jesus? And Mel said to Diane, Diane, don't you get it? We killed Jesus. And more people than just a good friend of mine made this observation. But my friend, friend living in Washington, D.C., and I were on the phone reflecting upon the conversation between Mel Gibson and Diane Sawyer. And my friend said they were both wrong. It was not the Jews who killed Jesus. It was not even us who killed Jesus. It was the Father who killed the Son. It was His will that He be crushed. Did He do it through the instrumentality of human beings? Yes, of course He did. Acts chapter 2 Verses 22 and following. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 3, verses 11 and following. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Parenthetical comment, I read this this last week and I thought, boy, the audacity of the Apostle Peter to be pointing his finger at people saying, whom you denied in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Peter the one who three times had denied Jesus. But don't you find it a wonderfully encouraging thing that the preacher is guilty of the very thing that he understands other people to be guilty of? But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And that faith is through Jesus. And he has given this man perfect health. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus has fulfilled. You see it? According to the predetermined foreknowledge of God, according to the prophetic word in the scriptures being fulfilled, it is the Father who has given the Son that through human instrumentality, the Father might crush the Son. And why would he do that? Why would Jesus die? The second answer to the question is so that Jesus by his death might secure for his people a boatload of blessings. A boatload of blessings. Here's how I'd like you to think about Isaiah 53. Having sort of led us up to Isaiah 53, having having made this observation that this was the will of the Father, this was the purpose of the Father, that the Son be crushed, that His blood be shed in fulfillment of that eternal covenant made between the Father and the Son for the sake of the people whom the Father had loved and entrusted to the Son. Here's what I want you to see in Isaiah 53. I want you to think of Isaiah 53 as a house with many, many rooms. I want you to live with Isaiah 53 this week and into next week and then into the week following. 
And I want you to think of the Biltmore. That's a house, isn't it? I want you to think of the Biltmore. Or, or I want you to think of some, some like mansion, some chateau on the Rhone River, some gloriously beautiful place, some vast and expansive place positioned on a gloriously beautiful knoll in a gloriously spectacular environment. Or maybe the imagery that C.S. Lewis creates for us and conjures for us in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Think of that old country house where the children went to escape the bombing in London and they find themselves in this big expansive house and it has these really cool places in it like a wardrobe through which you can go and sometimes when you go through that wardrobe you find yourself in a fantastic world. I want you to think of Isaiah 53 like a house, a house with many, many rooms. See, so often, it seems to me, so often we, we Christians who are the heirs of the legacy of one of my favorite people in all of human history, Martin Luther, whose conscience was set free by the idea of justification by faith, by the idea that Jesus in his death on the cross secured in the presence of the Father a verdict of not guilty. Sometimes I think, I think we come into the house and we, and we just sort of stay in the justification room. You know, we come, we come through the entrance, perhaps through repentance and faith, and we're in the foyer, and, and we stand and we marvel at this massive entryway with this glorious staircase that goes up to the upper levels, and there are rooms off to the right and rooms off to the left, but we stay in the foyer. We stay in the foyer when there are rooms to be explored. Rooms, many of them in this passage in Isaiah 53. Rooms with words like cleansing. Rooms with words like peace. Rooms with words like acceptance. Rooms with words like restoration. Rooms with words like prosperity and abundance. Rooms with words like adoption. Adoption. Folks, Paul was autobiographical. Peter was autobiographical. So when a preacher turns autobiographical, he doesn't do it to direct attention to himself. He does it for the reason that Peter and Paul did it. He turns autobiographical in order to direct their attention to the blessings of God Almighty and how those blessings of God Almighty, that salvation, have penetrated and enfolded a particular sinner. So I'm going to turn autobiographical for just a moment. 
And I'm going to tell you that the most precious room in the house to me is the adoption room. I had a two-hour-long conversation with my sister yesterday. And I said to my sister, I don't say this in bitterness, but let's acknowledge that you and I never had the father that God intended for us to have. And in many ways, Kathy, I think you suffered the most from not having that father. And Kathy, here is why I'm a Christian today. I'm a Christian because in Jesus, I have a father whom I've never had before. And by his grace, I have been made a member of a family where acceptance and mercy and grace are extended by that father to every member of that family. Kathy, this is a family in which the father never says to you, you're too fat. Lose some weight. You're lazy. Get a job. This is a father who in Jesus has said over and over and over again, I love you. You are mine. You belong to me. Folks, I want you to live with Isaiah 53. And you can range from Isaiah 53 to other places in the scriptures. And you can find glorious rooms in the gospel house. And we're going to look at just some of them next week from this passage. I hope you will look forward to that and bring your friends. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel house that has more rooms than we will ever have time in this life fully to explore. But thank you that across the thousands and thousands and thousands of years of eternity, we will have the joy and privilege of exploring every room in the house and then going back to the beginning with greater joy and anticipation. We will start all over to explore and to enjoy the manifold wonders of the salvation that you have secured for us. Encourage the hearts of your people. And Lord Jesus, I beg you that for anybody who's on the outside looking in, you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe, and the will to walk through the door into this glorious and expansive house. 
We ask this in your name that you might be glorified. Amen.